From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Department of Homeland Security's top attorney says a government accountability office opinion that the appointment of three DHS officials were improper is erroneous and politically based. An eight-page letter from DHS senior official acting as general counsel Chad Mazel claims GAO should rescind the decision. A spokesperson at GAO tells FCW the office stands by its work. The Department of Defense will revamp the way it trains personnel. Pentagon Chief Management Officer Lisa Hirschman says the department will create a central online repository for training material. Federal News Network reports DOD will also create a learner record repository to track each person's training and education. The Air Force has a candidate to be its next vice chief of staff. Lieutenant General David Alvin will take over for General Stephen Wilson if the Senate confirms him. Alvin is currently the director for strategy plans and policy on the Joint Chiefs of Staff. The General Services Administration is working toward having one solicitation for multiple award contracts. It's part of its efforts to simplify the contracting process, but GSA may be missing out on an opportunity to simplify these acquisitions even more. Jacob Bertram is principal consultant at the Lofeld Consulting Group. Jacob, welcome. Uh, thanks for coming on. You're writing about this in Washington Technology. What does this combination look like of merging the multiple award schedules and the government-wide acquisition contracts? Well, this idea is uh, taking, uh, really taking root in industry where there's one master services agreement for all of the uh, all of the companies that are are doing business with with that company. Um, so, it, it, looking at it in a way that the government could implement this is taking the best of the both worlds. So, one uh, the continuously open multiple award schedule where there can be uh, companies that can be onboarded relatively quickly. Um, and then the, taking the best of the GWAC world where you can have flexible contract types, fixed price, time and material, cost reimbursement. So taking both of those into one vehicle that can be used government-wide. You write in this piece in WashTech, imagine a contract vehicle that's continuously open, allows both fixed price and cost reimbursement contracting, flexible pricing, allows companies to propose commercially viable solutions. I think that's maybe the most key thing here is that every agency says it wants uh, commercial solutions whenever possible. That strikes me as maybe the biggest change here. Am I on the right track? No, I think that definitely is uh, going the right track. So what we have with the multiple award schedule is a really great contract vehicle that's continuously open and that really vets out the, um, the suppliers and making sure that they're they're good to go with business with the government financially, technically, and uh, from a quality assurance wise. So that's one of the benefits of the multi-award schedule. However, one of the drawdowns of it is the rigid pricing that's on there. And then also the inflexibility of the special item number, the SIN structure, where it doesn't always map uh, the way that a company goes to market. You get at what I think maybe the primary objection would be to this from vendors, and that is that something like this potentially could be complicated. You're right, if a new company already has an existing uh, mass or GWAC, they're automatically in. New companies could submit a simple technical proposal based on what the potential supplier can provide to the government and how it plans to perform the work. It strikes me that would provide the on-ramp for companies that didn't get in on this initially. Right. 
So one of the, the biggest challenges is the on-ramping process where a lot of the, the contract vehicles that are out there, say the multiple award schedule or various GWACs is that they're attribute contracts where we're looking at what a company has done in the past. And a lot of times those technical packages are telling the government what the government already knows. So is there an approved accounting system? What are the, um, the past performances looking like? All of that type of stuff. The, the government already knows all that. So you're putting together uh, documentation that is redundant and it also uh, is difficult to evaluate and it does take a long time. You give a, a thumbnail in this piece and you've discussed a couple of points already in our conversation, Jacob, about what you think the good points of uh, multiple award schedules and GWACs are. What are some of the downsides of each that by doing this consolidation we would get away from? The biggest challenge with the GWACs are the uh, putting together the the proposal package, which takes uh, quite a bit of time for a supplier to put together and then for the government to evaluate. And then uh, with every on-ramp that's out there, we see award, protest, corrective action, award again. And the process does take quite a bit of time and it's frustrating uh, for both government and industry. And there's not a lot of value add in that process where the multiple award schedule doesn't have those uh, challenges. So let's take the continuously open, easy to on-ramp part of the multiple award schedule and combine it with the flexibility of a GWAC. Those together would be a really great contract vehicle that would eliminate the pain points of both sides. What has to happen policy-wise from GSA, maybe something from OFPP, maybe something legislatively from Congress to make sure that we get the good things that we want about each of those in this consolidation and eliminate those things that you just described? The beauty of this idea is that it can all be done under existing regulation and under the existing law. So uh, in 2018, Congress gave the authority for the unpriced uh, schedules, uh, the unpriced IDIQ, which GSA has yet to implement on the multiple award schedule, mostly because of the regulation and uh, that goes along with it. So a lot of the multiple award schedule is rooted in regulation that has to be changed. So that is one of the drawdowns of that. For the GWACs, uh, those are already uh, set to go from a policy legislation and uh, regulation standpoint. So I believe that this idea could really get off the ground and get moving very, very quickly. You close out of this piece, we have about a minute and a half left, Jacob. You close out of this piece by writing, let's start the conversation with customer agencies as well as GSA and industry leaders. Are those the major stakeholders that need to be at the table during discussions about something like this, Jacob? Oh, definitely. And bringing industry to the table is going to be extremely important, especially with getting the technology uh, in place to make this work and work really, really well. So that's one of the, the biggest challenges that's out there is the outdated technology that the government is using when there are commercially viable solutions out there to have a contract uh, management system that can handle the, the potential, the size of the, com uh, the size of the number of companies that are going to be on this vehicle. 30 seconds left, Jacob. Is there anything that GSA has learned from the multiple award schedule consolidation that would apply to this transition if they were to do it? The, the beauty of the transition um, to one single multiple award schedule is the flexibility that's there. And that's definitely something that could be very important and very open scope uh, for a, a new contract vehicle that's continuously open and that allows the flexible pricing. Jacob Bertram, thanks very much for coming on. Great to have you. All right, thank you. Up next, a new color of money and a new way for the Defense Department to buy software. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the pilot program that's coming and how it could change the buying process forever.
Welcome back. Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition and Sustainment Ellen Lord says she's working on a pilot program to test a new way to do software acquisitions in the military. The pilot would use a new color of money to let contracting officers buy software with a separate agile budget activity. Nick Sinai is senior advisor at Insight Partners, former U.S. Deputy Chief Technology Officer. Nick, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. Your friend, uh, Jen Palka, who is now on the Defense Innovation Board, tweeted, this is a way bigger deal than it sounds like. Why is that the case, Nick? I totally agree. It is a big deal. Traditionally, the way that uh, acquisition of software works or the acquisition of anything really in the Defense Department is, is this idea of we'll plan for years, right? This RDT&E kind of money. Uh, we'll then do a big bang procurement uh, and then we'll have kind of ongoing operations and maintenance. And so that, that doesn't make sense. I mean, maybe that makes sense for, for large battleships, right? Uh, where you're gonna plan for years, you're gonna do this big procurement and then you're kind of in a 50 year steady state. That doesn't make any sense for software. Uh, and so if we can collapse the, those three categories into a single color of money, um, that's the, the goal here. And Ellen Lord has, has uh, said that they're going to pick nine programs, some that are, are, are uh, software-intensive weapon systems and some that are uh, more traditional defense business systems, and pilot this, this new color of money over the next couple of years to see if Congress can still have a level of, of, of oversight, uh, but ultimately, can we deliver capability faster? Is it possible that it's both much more of a big deal than it appears on the surface and much less of a big deal than it appears on the surface? And the reason that I say that, Nick, is because the department's been talking about doing more agile ac uh, software acquisitions for a number of years now, not just this administration. I mean, the Obama administration was talking about it, as you know, too. And it strikes me this is just the mechanism to be able to do what the departments wanted to do all along. Yeah, so uh, the Defense Innovation Board uh, famously, famously says that uh, software is never done. And you could say that uh, um, government modernization policy is never done too. Uh, and in fact, you see a lot of a lot of this in, in uh, Secretary Ash Carter's moves, right? With the Defense Innovation Board, which the uh, had authorized, uh, I mean, excuse me, Congress had had charted them or asked them to, to develop um, uh, the software uh, study that they did last year. Um, and so you see that they worked closely with the Defense Digital Service around talent issues and, and DDS was, was set up under the prior administration. So you really see a continuation uh, of this particular topic. And uh, but, you know, the, the rubber has got to meet the road. So like we we talk about it, we, we make kind of policy changes. There's a, a, a new software acquisition pathway um, that Ellen Lord's office put out. And what's interesting is it's an interim policy. Right. So it, it, it uh, rather than being a single a definitive policy. It's, you know, let's get some feedback from the program offices. Um, and so all of this is great. They've trained over uh, 1,400 uh, acquisition professionals through uh, Defense Acquisition University. So you're starting to see some of the, the seeds of this, uh, but we, we, we've got to move faster, Francis. And, and um, you know, our, our warfighters uh, demand it. Our, our adversaries aren't waiting. And so, so we absolutely need, need to uh, build, buy, and integrate software better. So what you're proposing is the same thing a lot of people are proposing about a lot of different things in the Defense Department, and that is more speed and more scale. What does that look like in this realm, Nick? Well, so the, I think there's a, a few things here. One is we have to uh, buy software better. So look at uh, Defense uh, um, DIU, Defense Innovation Unit, right? Uh, we have one up here in Boston, uh, also in Silicon Valley and Austin. 
And that really is how do we buy commercial technology faster, including from the, the venture capital backed ecosystem, these high growth software companies that don't traditionally uh, serve the defense department. That's one piece of it. Uh, we have to figure out how we uh, buy custom uh, software better. And that, that's a lot of what we've been talking about uh, right now. Um, and so that's going to be another piece. But the other piece of this is, is how do we do software better inside the services and inside the fourth state? And that's why I'm so excited about Castle Run. Um, and you see Army Futures has, has announced that they're going to set up a software factory um, and, and upskilling the, the workforce, not just for these software factories, but, but for the acquisition professionals. And so that's, that's why I'm excited to see the launch of Air Force Digital University. Uh, Army has launched Quantum Leap. And these are programs to, to essentially uh, train and upskill the existing uh, uniformed and civilian professionals. We have tremendous uh, technical talent uh, inside of DOD. And so it's putting, putting them to, to better use and, and, and kind of repurposing them for uh, modern software development and, and acquisition of, of uh, modern software capabilities. What is Congress's role, Nick, in uh, supplementing, supporting, encouraging, driving innovation in the Defense Department software-wise? Well, Congress has been really supportive on this front. Uh, you see this in multiple NDAAs. Um, they're the ones that tasked the, the Defense Innovation Board for, for creating the software study and worked very closely. So you see it in both the House and the Senate side, they've been supportive. Uh, and it's true in, in the IAA as well as the NDAA. So you, you, you see this, uh, but of course, Congress is not a monolith. And so there's a difference between the authorizers having an idea and the appropriators wanting to actually follow through. So one thing that we'll, we'll see is, you know, will the appropriators actually uh, appropriate in, in a single software bucket or will, do they want to do more traditional uh, appropriations? Nick Sinai, thanks as always. It's great to see you. Thanks, Francis. Up next, the transition that's coming no matter who wins in November. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the time is now to start teeing up the next team of presidential appointees. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. Be right back. Welcome back. Out of the 2 million or so federal employees across America, only about 4,000 are political appointees. Historically, now is about when recruiting the next team of appointees kicks into high gear no matter who wins in November. Tina Sung is vice president of the Federal Executives Network, the Partnership for Public Service. Tina, thanks for coming on the program. I think one common misconception about transition is that, for example, in the case in which we have now, if President Trump's reelected, there's no transition. And that's not the case at all, is it, Tina? No, not at all. There's a lot of turnover in a second term. The partnership has done some research that show in the six months since election to the first six months of the following year, in the Bush, Clinton, and Obama administrations, 43% of the top appointees left, and only 11% of appointees stay through the end of the second term. So there's a lot of turnover, but that also says there's a lot of opportunity to serve. What does that look like now? Where is it your sense that based on historical markers, the transition team should be in the middle of August in preparation for whatever might happen in November? 
Well, the transition teams want all those wonderful applicants, and in past Obama and Trump, 250,000 people applied for presidential appointees in the very first year. So that's a lot of people applying. And uh, what they want you to do is to start to get ready, to understand the process, to gather your information for your forms, develop your resume. So when they do open the doors to accepting applications, you'll be ready. One of the things, one of the measures that HR people in government tell me that they get, say, through USAJobs.gov and so on, is that about 90% of the applicants they get are not, they can eliminate them fairly quickly. If we apply that same marker to the number you just gave me, that still means that these transition teams have 25,000 people that they have to go through in order to fill 4,000 jobs. How do you scale that, Tina? How do you, how do you build up that kind of, of, of framework of infrastructure that you need to go through all that stuff? Well, as I said, it will move backstream in the process and get the candidate ready. So the better prepared the candidate is, the more likely your chances of getting through the screen. But there's not only the transition team, but once a president is in office, he has his uh, pers presidential personnel office. Uh, and then in each cabinet department, there is a White House liaison that also is an extension of PPO that helps them screen. So a lot of people are screening uh, but yes, the volume is very high and uh, they want you to be ready. So the more ready you are and the easier you make it for them to match you to positions, uh, the better for you. On the Partnerships Transition website, uh, presidentialtransition.org, you have a list of eight steps that people should be ready to walk through in order to become a member of the, the administration. And there are a couple of them that strike me as maybe the most challenging or the most potential for somebody to get off track. And those are the submission of the online forms for background investigation, financial disclosure, and then resolving those financial disclosures. We could probably name a long list of folks from both parties over the years who have been tripped up in those spaces. What should people be doing now who are potentially interested in jobs in either administration should, uh, should they be in power in January to go through to be ready as you, as you alluded to a moment ago, Tina? Okay, I've written a whole blog on this, which is to get ready, become familiar with the forms, and there's two key forms that everybody has to fill out, the SF-86, which is the questionnaire for national security positions. When I got my security clearance at Social Security, it was only 20 pages long. Today, it is 136 pages long. And they ask you for employment, where you live, your criminal record, bankruptcy, drug use, foreign contacts, foreign travel. So the thing is, is to gather your information because you want to be absolutely truthful and factual. The other key form that you mentioned is the OGE 278E, which is the Public Financial Disclosure Form, issued by our Office of Government Ethics. That has nine parts that ask you for your assets, your income, your liabilities, and it also asks the information about your spouse. So you do have to have conversations about that. Where people get tripped up is not putting the accurate information early and having the correct dates, the correct amounts of money, being absolutely truthful about everything. And then when you are offered the job, 
to be able to submit your paperwork within 24 to 72 hours because it just shows that you're ready and you're interested. We have about a minute left, Tina. Is there a difference in the way that people should follow this process if they're going to be, if they're a candidate for a Senate confirmed job as opposed to just a presidentially appointed job? No, the front end is the same. You know, do your resume, fill out the forms. If you're one of the 1,200 lucky enough to get a Senate confirmed position, you have to then prepare for the Senate confirmation, go through the confirmation hearing, and then for all, the president issue and the secretary of state issue a commission, you get sworn in, and then you're onboarded. So yes, it's complicated. Also, for uh, higher level appointees, uh, White House or the transition team may ask for more information. There's a personal data statement, or there's a supplement to the SF-86, and if you're going through Senate confirmation, the Senate committees have additional questionnaires. So that's what we mean is to get ready. There's that saying is luck happens when preparation meets opportunity. So prepare so when the opportunity comes, you will be lucky enough and have the honor and privilege of serving your nation. Tina Sung, great insight. Thank you very much. Thank you, Francis. If you've missed the show or you're on the go, you can stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Government Matters is available as an audio podcast now. You get it every day on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. Or just ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC 7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.